Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hey, everybody. My name is David Boris. And I'm Frankie C. And this is Everybody, everybody Sucks. Sucks, the podcast where we explore the struggles and triumphs of the journey from amateur to professional. People think that artists are born great at what they do, but the truth is, in the beginning, everybody, everybody sucks. sucks. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the newest episode of Everybody Sucks. I am here, of course, with my partner in crime, Frankie C. Frankie C., what up? Hey. We got a heck of a guest on today, Derek Rattan. And let me tell you, this bio is a heck of a thing to read. Derek Rattan is a Grammy-nominated Nashville-based singer-songwriter and Canadian country music artist. He's the writer of multiple U.S. Billboard Top 10 country singles, including five number one songs. Originally from Bracebridge, Ontario, Derek moved to Nashville as a young man to pursue both his career as an artist and songwriter. Derek has had songs recorded by Eric Church, Jason Aldean, Morgan Wallen, Luke Combs, Tim McGraw. Have you heard of these people? Dirks Bentley, and so many others. Who? Include, yeah, exactly. Who are these people? Hacks. Hacks, total <laughs> hacks. Oh, that's funny. His chart offers include Dirks Bentley's number one hit, What Was I Thinking, as well as Lot of Leaving Left to Do, Eric Church's Guys Like Me and Hell on the Heart, Blake Shelton's number one song, Mine Would Be You, which saw Derek receive a Grammy nomination and earn an ACM Award for Song of the Year, as well as Blake's Came Here to Forget, which earned Derek another number one. Derek kept rolling when in 2017, Jason Aldean released Derek's song, Any Old Barstool, taking that to number one. And in 2020, Derek received his fifth number one with Maddie and Tay's Die from a Broken Heart. As an artist, Derek has won CCMA Awards at the Canadian Country Music Awards. He's been nominated for a Juno Award. He's released multiple albums. He's headlined his own tours and earned 11 top 10 songs at radio. His debut Canadian single, When You Come Around, which is my personal favorite DR song, was ranked number 10 on Canadian Country Radio's Most Played Songs of the Decade 2000 to 2009. He is a 10 times ASCAP, 11 times SOCAN, and two times CCMA award winner, and the recipient of three NSAI top 10 songs I wish I'd written. Ah, oh, Derek Rutan, welcome to Everybody Sucks. I fell asleep during that intro. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, buddy. It's great to be here. Man, it's so good to have you on the show. This is a big one for me because, uh, Frankie, I don't know if you knew this, but Derek is not just a friend, but he's been a bit of a mentor for me in my journey. And so it's so great to be able to um, now pick his journey apart. And, and we are really excited to do this. So, Derek, man, I know you're way out in the country. I know you, no one ever visits you. <laughs> Because you had a long yeah. gravel road. 
<laughs> just a mailbox and just country all around. But at one point, you weren't living way out in the country with no visitors. You were a young, young boy, I guess, at the time, and, and you were first starting with music. So could you take us back to Ontario and take us back to the first time that you sort of discovered music as something you might want to do? Well, just to correct something you said, I still was out in the country in Ontario. I, w- I was just colder in the wintertime oh. um, because it was Ontario. But yeah, man, I grew up, as you mentioned in the bio, in Bracebridge, Ontario. It's about six miles outside of town, actually, and grew up with cousins and grandparents right over the hill. And I guess the first time that I got turned on to music would have been my parents' record collection. And my parents were teenagers in the late 60s, and I was born pretty early after they got married in, in the early 70s. So a lot of the records that I had access to, I mean, all of the records I had access to were my mom and dad's records. And so that was Creedence Clearwater Revival. That was, you know, the Beatles, the Kinks. There was some country in there. They had some Johnny Cash, Johnny Horton, Glenn Campbell, some Dolly Parton. Nice. But I'd say, you know, 70% of it was was rock and roll. And and so that was kind of what got me interested in music. I, I could remember sitting in front of their record player and just staring at the CCR record Cosmos Factory comes to mind because that was such an interesting record cover. I don't know, man. It, yeah. The artwork and just the sounds that came out of that record player when John Fogarty started into that riff on Up Around the Bend, I mean, had me captivated at, mm-hmm. you know, eight years old. So that's that's kind of where that journey started. And did you, when, when did you first pick up an instrument? I was 12. Um, well, my mom, <laughs> it's funny, she sent me a couple of pictures recently of me with a cardboard guitar that she made me when I was three. So I was always kind of standing around air banding you know, in a diaper. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> can we have that photo? Yeah. Want, I was just about to say, that's the photo we want for the. Actually, I want that one. Actually, why not? I think I Instagrammed it one time. I might as well send it to you guys too. Um, oh, I can't wait. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty awesome. But um, when I got my first real guitar, was I guess I was 12 and it was Christmas. Asked for a guitar and I got a. It was actually an electric guitar, and it was a um, a Sears copy of a Gibson SG, wow. like the one Angus Young and ACDC played. Yeah. Basically, that that's it, it was an off brand, but basically it looked like that, and um, that was my first guitar. Was there any musicians in your family? Like, was this was this kind of odd for one of the Rattan clan? Yeah, for one of the Rattan clan, a little bit. I mean, my we had a piano in the house growing up, but no one ever really played it. I mean, occasionally my dad would walk by and play the intro to like Johnny Be Good, you know, but it was actually my mother's family's piano and my mom and her sisters took piano lessons growing up and she got, when she got married, she got the piano. So it was always in our living room, but other than the records, I mean, no one really played, no one played guitar, no one played drums. My mom could play a little bit of piano by sight reading. She couldn't really do the by ear thing. So really it started with the records. I mean, my parents talk about how both of my grandfathers played fiddle actually at square dances in in the 19, I guess, late 30s and into the 40s. But again, it wasn't really something they did. I didn't really know them to do that. It was kind of just a story that I heard. Mm -hmm. So I was 
not the first, but kind of, it kind of felt like it just because it wasn't a super musical household. Where does a 12-year-old in Bracebridge learn to play? Like, how does a 12-year-old in Bracebridge learn how to play guitar? Well, there was a couple of music stores in, in town, and there was, a, there was a music store called Mostly Music. It's not there anymore. And there was a guy there named Emery who taught guitar lessons. And my dad took me to him. You know, like any 12-year-old kid, I was basically just <laughs> bringing him songs that I liked going, can you show me how to play Hot for Teacher? <laughs> yeah, and, right on. And, you know, or some Van Halen song that I loved. Or I remember I brought him a Loverboy song one time because uh, I was into that Get Lucky record. Speaking of a Vancouver band, there you go. Yeah, totally, absolutely. But so I, I took guitar lessons from him for, I want to say maybe six months or so kind of learned the basic chords and backing up from that I guess the first clue that I had or the first instruction I got on guitar was there was a guy named John Hardy who worked with my dad my dad was a forester for Ontario Hydro and uh, his buddy John played guitar so one time he was over and he took a ruler and a pencil and some lined paper and drew like the six strings of the guitar and drew the frets on there and he drew where my fingers went to play like an A, a D, and an E chord. Wow. Three chords I played just today. So yeah. still in my <laughs> repertoire, <chords>. folks. <laughs> That's all you need. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was the one, four, five right there. I could play yeah. pretty That's much anything that came out between 1956 and 1964. <laughs> but anyway, that was pretty much it as far as instruction. Those three chords from John and then about six months of guitar lessons. And then, and then it was really just... My ear has always been pretty good as far as picking out what I'm listening to. And, of course, that develops over time, and you don't start out good at it. But I guess I was good at it enough that I was able to, you know, figure out the chords to, you know, Summer of 69, which was one of, one of yeah. the first songs I played with with one of my first bands. And, nice. and you know, gradually you just you you get better at it, and you just hang out in your room and... Don't do anything else, and <laughs> just <laughs> eventually you get better. So when you go into high school, so now you're kind of playing a bit of guitar, and you just talked about like your first band. Like, w how quick is it from you learning guitar to you joining your first band, and then sort of like starting to like play music for other people? My first band was actually in grade eight, wow. and it was um, just guys in my school, and and um, we actually played. Uh, there was four of us, and we actually learned one song that we played at our grade eight graduation. And why, looking back at it, it sounds so ridiculous why the school would allow four 14-year-olds to play one song in the gym for grade eight graduation and then the DJ stars. It seems like, look, guys, either learn more songs or it's not, <laughs> it's not worth it, you know, to haul all your gear in here. But anyway, when I did go to high school, I had the benefit of going to a high school that Bracebridge and Muskoka Lakes Secondary School, BMLSS, go Broncos, although I don't think they're the Broncos anymore. <laughs> but when I went to school in the late 80s, there was an inordinate amount of musicians in the school. It was just this weird moment in history, man, where there were a lot of people who played guitar, there were a lot of people who played drums, and people sang, and... There was a guy at our high school named Dave Whiteside who was the math teacher. And um, Dave was a big 
fan of like Neil Young and Crosby, Stills, and Nash and and all of that stuff. And so he had a, a club called the Guitar Club, and it was such a nurturing environment. After school, he had this back of one of the rooms in the basement of the school, and there was a little studio in there. And he had all these, I think most of them were in his handwriting, but handwritten lyric sheets with the chords above the lyrics to old-time rock and roll, I Want to Hold Your Hand, just all of this great music. And every spring, the high school would have something called the Cafeteria Jam. And it was all these bands who would play after school in the cafeteria. They put up this stage. And um, my first band was, or my second band, I guess, was uh, formed just to play that Cafeteria Jam that year. And then the next year, a friend of mine named Wes Banks We were in a homeroom together, and he said, hey, man, I know you play guitar. Do you want to start a band and maybe play some Creedence Clearwater Revival and Steve Miller Band and, you know, Tom Petty and stuff like that? And I said, "Uh, yeah, sure. And I kind of have him to thank for the whole thing because I don't know, and maybe I eventually would have done that, but it was at his suggestion that we started this first band, and that was the band that I really started writing songs in earnest Four. Our set list was primarily Creedence Clearwater Revival songs, and we did Rolling Stones and Tom Petty and Mellencamp and Steve Earle when that came along. And um, that was really the period of my life when the fire got lit in me, both to perform and to write, just because backing up to when I was eight years old, sitting cross-legged in front of my mom and dad's record collection, those records, you know, when I would look at them, it would say, up around the bend, and under that, in parentheses, J.C. Fogarty. And I would say, who'll stop the rain? And under that, in parentheses, J.C. Fogarty. And somehow I put it together that that's who wrote the song. So I thought, if you have a band, you have to write song. That's that's what you do. So for me, they kind of came hand in hand. And so it was with that band that I I really kind of dug in to the songwriting. Now, is the song that you brought to share with us today a song you did with that group? Well, you know what, Frankie, it is. And I tried to talk as much as I could on the front half of this because I knew we were probably going to segue into this song and I still don't want to be forced to listen to it. Um, <laughs> but uh, yes. but I know that's kind of the point of your podcast. So uh, yeah. it's what you I've signed got... up for today. <laughs> it, it really yeah, is. Poor... So yeah, this song, oh. this song was one that I wrote for that band I don't remember writing it. Um, it was a long time ago. I was, I think I was 16 years old when I wrote this song. And we played, that band played about, uh, I don't know, we did about a half a dozen originals in our, in our set, and this was one of them. Okay, well, let's hear it. Oh, boy. Okay. Bear in mind, I, I'm 16 years old here. Okay, I'll stop with the disclaimers. We, you can disclaim all day. You know what? We'll even let you disclaim more yeah. after we listen to a bit of it. Okay, perfect. And I will only subject you to a verse chorus. Excellent. So don't worry. You just have to grin and bear it for less than a, a minute. <sighs> okay, so embrace the suck. This is Route 16. Oh, this is so cute. Yeah, this is great. Oh, I hear all your influences. I know, I hear everything you say. CCR and up in here. 
Yeah. This is, Derek, this is the best, man. Can't believe you're that young. That is me singing as well, yes. Wait, I'm going to keep playing it. That, that was too quick. Hey, you said verse of the chorus. This. I guess I could turn it down a little. It's oh, grooving, man. Thank it's you. grooving. Thank you. It, it's so interesting to hear you talk about your influences. It, like this happens every time we do this. They someone talks about their influences, then they play an early song. And you hear and it. You hear it. Like nine times out of ten, I'm like, oh my God, this is exactly what you were listening to at the time. You know, isn't that what we do in the beginning? I mean, and really, even to this day, just mimic our heroes, you know. Oh, totally. Um, yeah. But I will say, like, for you you said you guys were 16. Yeah. This is pretty good for for a band of six. 16-year-olds. I, I think that you need to give yourself some credit there. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, that, Yeah, and we actually recorded a 12-song album. This song actually wasn't on that. That was the next summer we did it. We did an album. And that stuff is, I mean, it, it, you can hear, I was listening to it today when I was deciding what to send you guys, and you can hear it evolving a little bit, but I really wanted to give you something from the earliest days and, yeah. and this and this really was that and it's funny after we recorded it it got passed around high school one of my friend rob said you know that guitar riff is straight out of a ted nugent song and i, <laughs> I was like what really oh oops well it's just a pentatonic scale dude so uh you know yeah exactly um it's interesting lyrically listening to it i think lyrically is is probably the biggest thing that's the most embarrassing just because what am I even talking about? You know, but you're trying to at that age, you're trying to figure it out, and you're, you're like you said, you're pulling from your influences, and so you're kind of you're mimicking them a little bit. And uh, funny thing about that song is, um, I had recorded, I guess, five or so songs, I guess, at that point with the same band, and there was an English teacher in our high school named Elaine Loberg, Mrs. Loberg, and she she saw me one day, and she wasn't even my teacher, but it was a small school. And we had done some gigs at school, so she knew that I was into music and everything. And and she drew my attention. She brought it to me, actually. It was a magazine that was out. It was had a very short run, this magazine. But uh, it was a Canadian magazine called TG, which w- stood for Teen Generation Magazine. And um, nice. yeah, yeah, it was, it was <laughs> great. Weird it had such a short run. But anyway, um, <laughs> she brought this magazine to me and she opened it up. And in this magazine, there was a, a song contest. It was a national cross-Canada song contest. And she said, I think you should enter this. And just because she said that, I did. And I ended up winning with that song. Wow. Yeah, I know. Wow, exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> ended up winning with that song for Across the Country. And uh, that really was kind of a shot in the arm for me and and it was validation that looking back on it I think that was probably pretty important because it you know it kind of at that age you're looking for little kind of signposts along your yeah, journey totally. that say hey this is this is the right path to be on and and I think for me winning that contest was one of them and and um I, I was probably the only entry I mean I'm going to I'm going to I guess at that <laughs> but uh yeah, that was kind of the song that started it all. Okay, so let's let's really pin that song then, because that song, that means like, like you said, that song is like a watershed moment because here you you got a sign from the universe saying, "Hey, Derek, you can write songs." Whether or not you think those songs are good looking back now, I mean, at the time it obviously resonated with with the eighty four readers of TG Magazine. <laughs> and, 
<laughs> Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Exactly. What's crazy, dude, is like I've since met two of the three judges who, who judged that contest. What? I mean, one is, uh, I mean, Eddie Schwartz, who is a SOCAN board member. And Eddie's from, oh. I think he's from Toronto, but he wrote Hit Me With Your Best Shot. You know, yeah, Pat I, Benatar. Yeah, absolutely. One guy was at a record label. And it's crazy later on in my career to meet these guys and go, you know, what something you, you know, did, I mean, for me back when I was 16 had an impact on on my career. Turns out, I didn't know that then. But um, it's funny, listening to that song today, I was like, if I was judging a song contest and it was a bunch of teenagers what would be the strengths of this and i mean i think what that song shows and this is now with my eyes looking back as someone in the business now who's written some songs i think it what it shows is an understanding of structure and mm-hmm. and kind of he knows what a verse is he knows what a chorus is right. there yep. there's kind of like crescendos and decrescendos kind of emotionally I mean, the lyric is still pretty juvenile and pretty silly, but um, but I think that that you can kind of see. I think if I heard that song, I go, okay, that that kid kind of kind of might get it. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> and so yep. I mean, he's got a long way to go, but he kind of might get it. And so uh, I'll always be thankful for them for thinking that. So at this point, then you've won this this contest. You're writing songs with this band. And you're still a few years off from Nashville, but where does Nashville, like, where does the concept of, like, a professional songwriting city enter your world view? I would have to say, so when I was in my last year of high school, I heard Steve Earle's Copperhead Road record. Oh, man, what an album. Yeah, and that record for me, I mean, I've said this before, but, I mean, it's true. It It was kind of like a doorway into country music. Because prior to that point, I had been, I mean, I'm from a very, you know, blue collar family in a very small town. And, and my dad was, was very into Randy Travis and, and kind of Hank Sr. and like some older country stuff. But I was primarily into like rock and roll and everything from, you know, CCR to, you know, Van Halen, which was popular when I was in high school and that I loved um, and still love. But um, st- when that Steve Earle Copperhead Road record came out, for me, it was like my head exploded because it was kind of a rock and roll record with country lyrics. Yeah. And it was that country lyric, the rock and roll sound of it kind of drew me in, but the country lyric kept me there. And um, these vivid pictures that he would paint with his words, it was um, just had me, it pulled me in. And that record was made in Memphis. And uh, not in Nashville, but I knew Steve lived in Nashville. And so that was kind of when Nashville was on my radar and I was already wearing cowboy boots. I mean, I wore cowboy boots the last half of high school, thanks to John Fogarty, I think. I wore a lot of flannel, too. Also, Fogarty. Um, yeah, Fogarty. Yeah, flannel and cowboy boots. Two Nashville staples to this day. <laughs> exactly. So and I didn't, I didn't even know at the time. Already. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, when I, when I found out that Steve lived in Nashville 
And um, right after that record came out, there was a record by a group called the Kentucky Headhunters. And there was another group called the Pirates of the Mississippi who kind of came out, I'd say, two, three years after that Copperhead Road record came out. And I was, again, it was kind of like rock meets country. And I was hooked. And a friend in my high school band, he was a few years older than me. And after high school, he went to Fanshawe College in London, Ontario. And it was a program there called Music Industry Arts. And um, it's still happening. And he went and he called me and he said, man, I think you'd really love this. Because I didn't know what I was going to do for college. I knew by the time Copperhead Road came out, I knew that I wanted to be a singer and a performer and a songwriter. But as far as where to go to be you know, trained in that, I had no idea. And when my friend Doug went to Fanshawe to the Music Industry Arts Program and thought so highly of it, I applied. Part of the reason I applied was just the faculty. He's since passed away, but the guy who was the production teacher there was a guy named Jack Richardson. And Jack produced every record the Guess Who ever made. He produced Alice Cooper's Killers record. I mean, tons of stuff. Max Webster, um, the Irish Rovers, for goodness sakes. And so Jack was the production teacher. And just to be able to learn from the guy who produced Night Moves and Rock and Roll Never Forgets, you know, (laughs) Um, I, I jumped at the chance. And so I applied to that school and, and got in and, and learned from some great, great folks there about production and engineering and met a lot of like-minded people who were also all people from small towns who were all kind of like the biggest thing in their hometown. And then they were all of a sudden in this microcosm of talent, whether it be, Hey, I write songs. I sing songs. I'm a musician. I want to be a record producer. I want to be an engineer. We were all kind of in this mix together, learning from each other and growing together. So that's that's kind of where I, I went for that and did that for about a year and a half, then got the opportunity to go on the road with a band that was, quote, from Nashville, end quote. Went on the road with them because I thought it was my ticket here. Ended up not being my ticket here, and I ended up just spending about a year and a half on the road playing um, in honky-tonks and dive bars and and bars all over, uh, mostly Eastern Canada, although we did do a few American shows. So spent about a year and a half doing that, and it was country music school because we were playing, you know, Clint Black and George Strait and Garth Brooks and then going back to, like, Gene Watson and Merle Haggard and all these guys. So did that for a while, went back to college, finished the semester I needed to graduate, and then in about... Three months, moved to Nashville. When you were playing with that band, when you like kind of look at your songwriting chops as a country artist, do you think that year and a half playing the country country standards affected your writing in any way? 100%. Yeah, 100%. I do. Because, you know, when you, when you stand on a stage, it affected my writing and it also affected my performance chops because you learn how to keep a crowd. As a performer, you learn how right. to keep a crowd engaged you learn, um, okay, I got to keep them dancing. I got to, you know, how to plan a set. You know, we can't do six ballads in a row. You've got to, you learn how to entertain. So there's that performance piece. And then on the writing side, yeah, when you're playing hit after hit after hit and watching how the crowd reacts, I mean, I think even if it's not a conscious thing, I think you're subconsciously asking yourself, hmm, I wonder why that, 
lyric works? Or why is that yeah. why does that melody put every beer in the air when you're singing it? You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh so yeah, I do think it was some valuable time that that I'm sure um informed my my writing. And so how old were you when you went when you did the move to Nashville? The whole time I was in that band that was touring playing the, uh, two different bands actually. But that whole time I was thinking, man, Nashville is where I need to be. Like I know that. Right. And and so I was in my head I I knew I was going there. So when I actually made the move I told the singer in the band whose band it was, because I was the guitar player in both these bands. I wasn't actually the singer. Judging by that uh, performance on Route 16, I think we all know why. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so oh I was gosh, the, <laughs> so self-deprecating. <laughs> I, I was the guitar player. So I told the singer I was going to Nashville, and and I just uh, I went home to my mom and dad's for for a minute and kind of got things sorted out, and then. And then drove down here. I was 22, I guess, from Bracebridge, Ontario to Nashville, Tennessee in my 87 Dodge Omni hatchback, burgundy, if you want nice. to get a visual. Ooh. And uh, yeah, Fancy. super sexy. Rented a room in East Nashville for 300 bucks a month. Oh, and, man. Uh, oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So let's, okay, let's put a, let's. So, sorry, let's like two things here. So number one, here you roll into Nashville. What's really cool, what you said, by the way, is that you always, when you're in this band, you knew you had to go there. I love that. Like you just, you knew right away that that was the place for you. But a part of me also wants to know what was East Nashville like when you first rolled in? Because I, I live in East Nashville. Frankie lives in East Nashville. These are not the, this is not the East Nashville of Derek Rattan's arrival in Nashville, is it? No, no. It was, it was, um, how was it when I moved there? There's one word, dangerous. Yeah. It was, it was, I mean, they would, my joke is they would regularly film cops outside my bedroom window. <laughs> like it was, it was, it was, uh, yeah, it was the first time I heard pistol shots, I yeah. think was, was, uh, was in East Nashville. And yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty sketch, man. And I was only there about six months, and then um, and then I met a lady who had lived on a farm. I rented one of her outbuildings for twenty bucks a month. Um, oh my gosh! Because you know I was Canadian, so I couldn't work legally, and I was trying to save my nest egg. and And my three hundred bucks a month East Nashville room was uh, that was just too much money, man. So, uh, so yeah, I moved in, moved out to the farm about six months after I moved here. So it was a different situation then. Well, I guess this speaks, though, to the bigger question here, which is like, what is Nashville like when you first roll in? I mean, give us a sense of your first thoughts of this city when you, when you get there and start trying to like, trying to work or trying to like grind away. Wow. I'm just kind of putting myself back there in my head. It was magical, I think, is the, is the first word that comes to mind. Wow. And also scary. Came here with my dad. I drove down in the 87 Dodge Omni. My dad followed behind me in a Jeep Cherokee because we couldn't fit all my stuff in the Omni. So I had my dad here. And then after five days, he left and drove home. And the city was, um, I mean, I'd, I'd, London, Ontario is not a small town, but you know, I mostly just hung around the school when I was in college there. And Bracebridge, Ontario is, is sure a small town. So this was the first time I was in a legit city city. I mean, Nashville's the state capital, so there's a lot going on here. So it was a little overwhelming, but pretty much immediately, there was a guy in Ontario who had been here, and I kind of picked his brain for advice before I moved. And he said, as soon as you go, 
Get yourself a copy of a free newspaper. It's called The Nashville Scene. Flip to the very back. You'll see listings for writer's nights, and that's how you meet people. Because when I moved here, I mean, I knew maybe three people to call. If I had to call anybody, I'd met them all at CCMAs the previous year. So not people I was particularly close with, but they were people I quote-unquote knew. So I immediately started going to these writer's nights, and that's where I found my people. Because immediately, in those days, and maybe still, there were so many writer's nights around town that seven days a week, you could go to the Douglas Corner, you could go to Broken Spoke, Bluebird, Cartyard Cafe, Boardwalk Cafe, Printer's Alley, you could go to the Captain's Table. I mean, you could go to all these places, and, and I would. I made it my job, basically, five nights a week. I would go out and sign up and put my name on a list, get up there and play my original songs, and more importantly, meet like-minded people who were here to do the same thing I was. So it was an exciting time. Um, I remember the first time I went to the Bluebird, and I sat at the bar, and who was in the round that night? It was Bob DePiro, okay, wrote Church on Cumberland Road for Shenandoah. Russell Smith, who wrote Third Rate Romance. Uh, Jim Photoglow, who wrote Fishing in the Dark. I mean, that was my first sitting wow. in the Bluebird moment. I mean, I'm sure you guys have been to the Bluebird, but it's like your feet from these people and they're telling you the stories behind these songs and they're playing them. And I was just, I mean, if I didn't have the, if, if the hook wasn't in me then <laughs> or before yeah. that, it certainly was then, you know, because I was, I was, I was in. And uh, so, yeah, Nashville was, I mean, it was big, it was scary, but it was, it was magical. I mean, magical is definitely the word that, I've always used to describe the bluebird. So, yes. you know, your mentor is right there. It's it's insane. Oh, it's crazy. I mean, and I went, uh, there was another guy I met there, um, a songwriter named Don Schlitz, who wrote The Gambler for Kenny Rogers, wow. uh, Forever and Ever Amen for Randy Travis. Oh, man. On the yeah. other hand, for Randy Travis, uh, he thinks he'll keep her for Mary Chapin Carpenter. I mean, on and on and on. Don played a show there called Don for a Dollar. And the cover charge was a dollar. And he would stand on stage, which was right up my alley in those days, a dollar cover yeah. charge. And um, that was like almost all your whole rent. It was, yeah, it was. It was literally uh, almost all of my rent. And the first night I was there, I met Don and we had an encounter afterwards where he was just super friendly and, and welcoming to me. And he just really made me feel. Like I was already part of the community just because I yeah. was an up-and-coming songwriter who literally had been in town for six weeks. And um, I, I owe a lot to him, too, just for making me feel welcome and like you're in the right spot. And that was so valuable in those days. But yeah, I have a lot of great Bluebird memories. Uh, I met my wife at the Bluebird, actually. Oh, what? What? Yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't meet her there. I met her at Douglas Corner, but then I re-met her again at the Bluebird, and we exchanged numbers and uh, and the rest, as they say, is, is history. It is history, um, man. That's so that's that's incredible. I mean, I love the 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 magic element to it, and like even and I will say, I know Nashville's changed a lot, and we all know that, but there is still elements of that that I still see in the city. And there's still that bluebird magic and getting the hooks in you when you see your your idols and these incredible songwriters playing in front of you. So I, I, I at least a little bit of that 
still exists. It's not at the level it was when you fr- probably first came down, but there's a tiny little bit of that still there. Oh yeah, which I think, and I and I'm not sure it's it's I'm not sure I would say it's not there. I think it's just different. You know what I mean? Like sure, like there's yeah. different places that people go to hang out now, and and the bluebird is still magical, and it's just bigger, and there's more concrete and more skyscrapers now. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't call them skyscrapers, I guess, but more, more. There's more buildings down. There's more cranes. There's down, a lot more towers. More cranes downtown yeah. than there used to there's be. There's a lot more cranes. <laughs> yeah, and you and you get to sure. experience the magic of the bluebird after standing in line for three hours. Now, <laughs> yeah. you know that's yeah. the difference. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. If only there was a dollar cover at the at the bluebird. Still, that'd be pretty nice. Yeah. No kidding. That'd be awesome. You know, Derek, I, I'm interested now in this. So you're there, you're going out. It's it's funny because I like I know a lot of people who are you know working in Nashville who also have a very similar story. Even like younger artists and stuff who are like or younger writers who like I went out every night. I go out every night. I know people that have just moved there that are like I'm going to every writer's round I can find every night. So from that sort of gr- that sort of like job, the job of going out and meeting people. When do you start getting in the rhythm of being a Nashville writer? I don't mean like cuts or signs, you know, being signed by a publisher, but when do you feel like, you, when did you start really grinding as like that writer every day a week kind of kind of person? Well, um, I kind of started grinding as soon as I got here in that I kind of made it, my, my job was two things as I saw it. As long as my nest egg was there and I didn't have to go find someone to pay me cash to lift heavy things, I was going to go out at night to writer's nights and I was going to write during the day. And so it was all writing by myself because I didn't have, you know, a group of co-writers around me yet. But eventually, you know, by going to the writer's nights, you meet those people. So I would write five days a week and and I did that because I heard that's what Nashville writers do. So that's what I did. I would just get up and grind. And then I would play those songs at writer's nights. And I guess I'd been here about... A year and a half, and I, as I mentioned earlier, I'd gotten to know Don Schlitz at the Bluebird. Don owned his own publishing company in those days called Hayes Street Music, and the guy who he had hired to pitch his songs was a guy named Scott Haugen. And Scott, I developed a relationship with Scott where we would go to breakfast about once every three or four months, and he'd say, "Man, play me more songs," and I'd bring him some songs. And while they never signed me, they did kind of set me up to write with their writers. And so I was writing with one of their writers one day, and we didn't even finish our song. We kind of got to the end of the day. He said, hey, man, I'm playing a show tonight at the Sutler down on 8th, if you want to come. And in those days, my answer was yes to everything, right? And so I went and saw him play. And while I'm seeing him play, in the door comes Scott, the song plugger that I'd been having the breakfast with, and on his arm was this brunette, about my age, a little younger maybe, girl he was dating. So they sit down, we get to talking. Well, her name is Christy Crutchfield. Her dad is Jerry Crutchfield, who produced Lee Greenwood, Tanya Tucker. He ran MCA wow. Publishing for years, and he had just left MCA to start his own publishing company, a company called Crutchfield Music. And so she said, well, why don't you send us some music? And um, I did. And I had taken other meetings with other people I had met, but it had never got past the send us some music and then they go, yeah, keep sending us stuff, which is code yeah, for well. <laughs> you're, you're on the way, but you're not there yet for us yep. at this time. And anyway, I, I sent Christy some stuff and uh, her dad, Jerry Crutchfield, ended up signing me to my first publishing deal. So that was um, 96, I guess. I've been in town about a year and a half. 
And I went in there every day and wrote whether it had a co-write or not, man. I just went into that office and wrote, yeah, just wrote a bunch of songs. The next year, wrote a bunch more songs. And nothing out of that catalog got cut. Although, do you remember there's an Aaron Prochette song called My Way? Oh, yeah. So mm-hmm. so I wrote that song with Tim Taylor, a uh, fellow Canadian writer here. That's right. And Tim and I wrote that, and I wrote that during that first publishing deal. And from 96 to 98, that song was out of that catalog. And it's funny because we, we actually talked about My Way in the interview with Aaron, which we just released. Just saw that today on there that you guys interviewed him. That's awesome. In that first deal, that was really the only cut that came out of that deal. And then they dropped me. And I thought, oh, man, I've made a huge mistake. I am now 900 miles from home. And uh, I thought I'd blew it. But I wow. kept plugging away. And by this time, my wife and I were... We weren't married, but we were together, and, and she's always just been an incredible source of strength and encouragement, and she's a songwriter as well, so, I mean, she gets it. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I was, I was out of a gig for about a year and a half, and then I ended up signing at Sony Music Publishing. At that point, I had been in town, I guess, seven years when I signed at Sony. Right. And that's really where the cuts started to happen. Make sure to tune in next week for our part two of our interview with Derek Rattan, where we talk about Derek's string of number ones, as well as the challenges he faced while writing them and his triumphs, both personally and professionally. Well, everybody out there in podcast land, we hope you enjoyed this episode. I'm David Boris. And I'm Frankie C. And remember, everybody everybody sucks. sucks.